It's Off Exit 10, presented by Capital District Sport and Fitness. sell that on amazon though are you um, no <laughs> <laughs> maybe ebay <laughs> yeah dr g um happy veterans day it's like fitting that you're on today during this uh, yeah it is uh, did you plan it that way or did it just we, we didn't it was the friday that was open but once we scheduled it i was like oh shit this is perfect yeah, yeah. it couldn't be any more perfect yeah really yeah well, i don't you so no i appreciate you coming on i've known you since you know we opened in 2018 you were right here with Mr. Beasley. Right, right. My little Shih Tzu. Yeah, since since week one, when this gym was much smaller, there was no equipment in here. Um, yeah, and you've been putting up with Dan four oh, years God. since. Yes, it's been tough, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, we get by. Um, why don't you just let the people know a little bit about your background before we, we get things going? Okay. Um, well, basically, I was uh, born in Czechoslovakia, outside of Prague. And uh, when the communists took over uh, in 48, my parents fled, and we settled in Iowa and uh, grew up in Iowa. And I went to medical school there. Always wanted to be a doctor, a surgeon. Did my uh, surgical residency at Georgetown. And then uh, I went on to do a fellowship in uh, kidney transplant surgery. I was interested in immunology, how the body defends itself. And uh, that led me into interest in cancer. And I went to Roswell Park, was trained as a cancer surgeon in Buffalo, and then stayed on on the staff of uh, Roswell Park for several years before I moved on to the University of Louisville, in Kentucky. And then uh, I retired. I was a Flight surgeon in the United States Navy and Reserves for 16 years as well. And uh, after I got my MFA, when I retired, I, I wrote books like the one there. And uh, I'm writing a book currently now on the history of military medicine because I love history. I love the military. I've had experiences in both. And I feel qualified that I can talk about what it's like to take care of the wounded from prehistory, Rome, Egypt, Greece, all the way up to God knows Ukraine now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get into that later for sure. Yeah, I feel like you've been immersed in this your whole life because you yes. were born Czechoslovakia, you said. Yeah. And then I read, is it true, was your dad in a concentration camp prior to you guys coming here? Yes, uh-huh, yeah. Um, that's really convoluted story, but basically my dad was born in the United States. Okay. Because his grand, his father, my grandfather, was from Czechoslovakia, but he came to the United States to study, where he met a woman from Walker, Iowa, a farm gal, and they got married. My dad was born, and he took her back to Czechoslovakia in 1922. So my dad was an American citizen, could barely speak English for the rest of his life, but he could be president, and I can't be. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is crazy. Um, is. When did you know you wanted to be a surgeon? Because I'm delving into your book, and you know a lot of the, the early chapters where I'm at is you know heavily based around this, this surgeon's mate. Uh, 
you know, you know, following around the, the doctors on the ship and you're yeah. describing the surgeries in detail. Is this something you've always thought you wanted to do or what made you want to get into it? Yeah. Well, I want to say, first of all, that in my book, all the things you're going to read about, all the injuries are things I've seen personally. So it's not made up. It's not like a writer, which I've seen so many times, uh, goes to their doctor and said, hey, what would you do if I had a big boil on my leg? And then they imagine what, you know, none of this stuff is made up. This stuff I've seen with my own eyes and right. treated. So I know what I'm talking about. And I dressed up one Halloween as a doctor, as a surgeon. Uh, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> uh -huh. My mom had a bunch of medical books. She wanted to always to be a nurse but never made it. And uh, um, I saw Not as a Stranger, a movie, when I was a little kid which you probably never even heard of. No. Nope. No, and you, you guys are so young. <laughs> what's it about? What's it about? <laughs> well, uh, it's Rock Hudson, and it's based on a book that was really popular in the early in 1950s where he becomes a, a surgeon. And uh, I remember this was a black-and-white movie, and I saw it when I was like five, six years old. You, know, you can see what my parents took me to. And they actually showed a beating heart where he's operating on somebody's heart. And this gas bag opening and closing as they're giving anesthesia. Really old, crude stuff. Yeah, I was just fascinated by that. I remember that so vividly. I haven't seen it since then, but I remember it. I don't know. All that stuff kind of converged. Yeah, yeah. And then you end up in cancer, in cancer research. So mm -hmm. what specific type of research... Have you, have you done in, in that in that round? Well, uh, I worked on my PhD, but I never had a chance to complete it in immunology, how the body defends itself against invasion by bacteria and so forth, and against cancer specifically, in my case. So I did research in that. And then uh, very proud to say that I was involved with the uh, Roswell Park uh, initiative in chemotherapy called 5-a-few interleukin, which we introduced in 1982. Now, the scientists at Roswell Park came up with it, but then as clinicians, surgeons, we then did the preliminary phase one, phase two, phase three trials on our patients at Roswell Park to see if it was you know, safe and efficacious, and that has become one of the leading therapies throughout the world, and I'm on that first paper. That's and incredible. That's pretty incredible. I'm, I'm really proud of that. That's incredible. I mean, Roswell <laughs> saved one of our childhood friends, Paul. Really? Um, yeah. Fantastic. We had, yeah, we had a friend who was diagnosed with uh, lymphoma, leukemia, what, but when she was in her 20s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then ended up there and is Fantastic. now yeah, great. Doing, doing great. Um, yeah, man. So when it comes to your cancer research, then you got into doing surgeries as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. as a surgeon, I did my surgery residency at Georgetown, and I was a full-fledged surgeon before I then went to specialize mm. in cancer. So then that was a whole different field, uh, really, where you just uh, you know learn how to remove uh, big-time tumors. I think some of my operations were up to 18 hours. Jeez, man. 18 to, hours. Yeah. That's a long time under the knife. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> long time holding it. A long too. time holding it. A long time. I mean, the person under is probably under. They're so, under. Yeah. They could know, care less. They could care less. But like, that's a long time to be holding a steady hand. And Hopefully they're carried. <laughs> <laughs> <Hopefully. laughs> 
but yeah, that's uh, that's pretty insane. Eighteen hour surgery, uh, can't imagine that. How much has all that just progressed over over the years? Uh in some ways, quite a bit. In other ways, not anywhere near as much as I'd like to see it go. Right, because I feel like cancer still now. I mean, I guess you definitely see more people, you know, recovering. I guess it depends on the type of cancer and how much it's spread and the stage that it's at. Right. Um, but people still hear it and they're like, "Oh, this is," you know, "you think this could be a death sentence for for me?" Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be, uh, especially in most cancers, if you diagnose them early there are some that are very hard to diagnose early like pancreatic cancer right but uh yeah it's it's pretty much curable in almost all instances if you catch it but you, you need but you need early diagnosis then yes where yes. Do we, where do we go wrong in this country then oh education of the populace number one uh for instance melanoma is this black mole that enlarges quickly from uh Ultraviolet rays induces a cancer of the skin, pigmented cells, melanomas, and uh, uh, the little son of a gun spreads rapidly, rapidly, whereas other cancers have to grow to a certain size before they start to spread through the body. This thing likes to spread like wildfire very early on, and it can spread anywhere. Just horrendous. I, I hate that disease. Well, light-skinned, fair-skinned people who are exposed to a lot of sun are particularly prone to develop melanoma because of the UV radiation changes the chromosomes in those cells. And the highest proportion of fair-haired, light-skinned people that are subject to a lot of intense sun are in Australia. So one out of 75 Australians uh, is uh, expected to come down with melanoma. So you go kiosks on the street or uh, in the subways or on the buses, they have, look for these four signs of melanoma. Right. You know, so they're education, educating the populace. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's so many things here. We did a lot with lung cancer, thank God, with the smoking and all that. Yeah, yeah I, feel, yeah, I feel like you look at the past just 30 years with that. I mean, we were growing up, there was smoking sections. This is the 90s. There's smoking sections and non-smoking right. sections in, right. in restaurants even. Yeah. Yeah. You were smoking on airplanes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But there are still things like colon cancer, large intestinal cancer, breast cancer that we need to do more education on, checking mm -hmm. for. These, again, are curable if you catch them fast enough, but people have to know what to look for and get the regular examinations. Right. That's the other thing. Uh, and then there are some toughies like brain cancer and pancreatic cancer that are just hard to catch early on. And brain cancer is increasing in incidence. Why do you think that is? I really don't know. Yeah, because how much does your genetic profile versus your lifestyle choices, when you're looking at that, on that, at that scale, yeah. which one weighs more in your head? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Ultimately, I believe that it's genetics. Okay, But then it's how you conduct your life, your lifestyle, your uh, diet, and so forth, like exposure to sun, smoking, uh, those sorts of things will predispose a person who already has those genes uh, to flip over into a cancer. Right, yeah. right. When, when we had a previous person on who's had suffered from breast cancer, she talked about like trauma mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how like, you know, childhood trauma, things like that, things that your body holds on to, stresses your body holds on to. Yes. Can then reap it, to, you know, 
yeah. ugly head yeah. in the form of cancer later on in life. So right. it's, you know, I think, like you were saying, it, it is a genetic thing that something triggers almost. Exactly. And then all of a sudden now you either have, you know, you have some sort of breast cancer or, you know, skin cancer or something like that. So, yeah. And that's one of the big advances in uh, medicine and uh, medical sciences, biological sciences, is, uh, is the uh, genome project where we know all the genes now of the human body. We don't know what 99% of them do yet. We haven't right. figured that out, but we know at least where they are. Right. And uh, we've, we're finding more and more, every year we're finding more and more genes that cause a particular kind of cancer. Like we already have a couple of genes that cause breast cancer. So there's a family history. You can go and be checked if you have those genes for breast cancer. Yeah, I mean that, that that's huge to be able yeah. to know that that that, that that's right. in your in your genetic profile. Right, especially if you can, can find out early. Can, exactly. Can okay, right? Because genes get transferred on from one generation to the next and to the next. So if I make good, healthy lifestyle choices throughout my life, and my kids do, and their kids do, can you over time change those genetic predispositions, or no? Are you kind of stuck with what's in your line? <laughs> Yeah, we don't know the bottom line, but I'll have to tell you that when I was in um, the biological sciences, uh, when I was in medical school, uh, we were adamantly told that it was you can't change the genes. No, well, now we can with CRISPR and all that. Yeah, and uh, there was a Russian fellow, Lysenko, back in the 1930s under Stalin, uh, that came up with this phony baloney genetics. Uh, and one of the things he proposed was that you could change a person's genes uh, by their, like you said, lifestyles or whatever. And to put it simplistically, it'd be like somebody dyeing their hair blonde all their life so that their offspring then would be born with blonde hair. Well, that would be considered nonsense. Right. And Lysenko was considered a fraud, which he really was. But in a way, he was right. We're beginning to find out that... Uh, clusters of proteins around our DNA, around our genetic code, called epigenes, can actually alter, affect the genes, and that epigenes can be altered by environment, even lifestyles, but that is such a very, we're at the very early, what we call nascent stages of understanding that. Right. But yes, they can change. Yeah, and you brought up CRISPR, and it's something I read about, I feel like, a few months ago. But expl explain that to people and the genetic modification and yeah. that technology. Okay, well, I'm going to try and put this as simply as possible. We found it in bacteria, for which the people that discovered this got the Nobel Prize back in, I think, 2017. And they found out that bacteria have this certain set of little toolkits in their genes that they can splice out, cut out bad things, bad DNA that's been injected into them by viruses. Because like viruses are the enemies of bacteria. Viruses attack bacteria too. And they have a over evolution uh, uh, procured, however you want to put it, evolved this little mechanism set of chemicals that can splice out that little bad segment of genes. Well, these scientists discovered that, and they then were able to replicate it in genes of all species in animals, mice, and so forth. And basically, uh, CRISPR, and I won't get into that, but 
uh, it, it's like a pair of scissors. So your chemical scissors that, and but each pair of scissors is specific for that one gene. Right. You can't just use any pair of scissors. You know, it'd be like trying to use a pair of scissors to cut metal. You need shears for that. Well, there are thousands and thousands of CRISPR kits out there now. You can buy them on Amazon for 137 bucks. And then do what with them? Do your own experiment down in the basement. Right, right. <laughs> What's the practical application one day then that you have this bad gene that carries Sure, this? there are all kinds of childhood diseases that right. people are born with. Oh, gosh, I was just reading an article on that, uh, and I can't remember the specifics, but somebody, a little child that was born with some sort of a basically incurable disease, not a cancer, and they're able to cut out those genes in his DNA by introducing the CRISPR, the specific scissors that would cut out that bad gene. Jeez. It's amazing. That's pretty wild. It's yeah. incredible. Do you have to do that early on to, or is it? Well, yeah, it's preferable to do it when you first diagnose the disorder and then before the disorder really takes right. hold. Would it, but like early on in life, just like in general, like would you have to essentially cut those bad genes as out? As a kid? Like as a kid, or is that something that can be done when you're an adult too? Depends on the disease. Okay. Depends on the disease. Like with breast cancer, for instance, even if you have the genes, it's probably not going to become evident if you're going to get breast cancer until you're in your 20s. Yep. You know, so that's why a lot of women that find out they have the genes will undergo voluntary mastectomy removal of both breasts mm -hmm. while they're still healthy. Same uh -huh. thing with ovarian cancer. We found that so they'll have their ovaries removed. That uh, way it doesn't so that they don't get it yeah you know? right right were your surgeries all with a specific type of cancer or you worked uh, all across various types uh basically my favorite was musculoskeletal okay uh tumors of, of the soft tissues melanoma and then gi tract stomach uh intestines and uh one of the wonderful things that uh came along is a uh, laparoscopy endoscopy uh, thanks to the Japanese. Back over 100 years ago, Chevalier Jackson uh, invented this metal tube with a candle on one end and a little mirror, and you'd slide it down the person's throat, and he could look into the person's stomach. That was the first endoscopy. Yeah, yeah, very crude. <laughs> you crude. Know. Yeah, nothing I'd really want to lie down for. No, thanks. Well, then, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, the Japanese, with their mastery of optics, then came up with these flexible fiber optics, you know, these little fine glass tubes that would bend without breaking and that would transmit light. So now you got these flexible scopes and these controls. I love doing that. And by using the controls, you could manipulate this thing all around every which way inside the body. Of course, the patient, you know, gets a little sedation so they don't have to withstand the discomfort. But, uh, oh, that's amazing. Well, now that's been developed, beginning with a gynecologist, they would use these straight tubes to look in a lady's belly to check out things, and they've been doing that for years. And I remember when I was a, uh, in my senior year, a chief resident at Georgetown, and we'd have these weekly meetings with the professors and, and the uh, full-time staff, the fully-fledged surgeons, and we'd discuss our cases. and. Uh, I was talking about a gallbladder case that I did, and we did all those gallbladders with a big cut in the belly. 
And the medical students that were with us, one of them said, gee, you know, I just got off the gynecology rotation. Couldn't you just do gallbladder surgery by sticking one of these tubes in and doing it that way? Well, the staff and the surgeons just laughed their heads off. What an idiot. How naive is this kid? <laughs> you know, what a stupid idea. You know, hey, listen, kid, you know, you can't. Well, five years later, they start doing it. <laughs> yeah, you think about, I mean, in here, right in the gym, we function in the orthopedic realm. Yeah. So you got somebody who got an ACL in, let's say, 1985 versus an ACL last week. You think about that scar that you have running down the quad to the, you know, the front of the knee, uh, towards the tibia, and now it's just like three, I know. three little holes. Yeah. And that's I, that. I had jock friends in college that had these big incisions across their knees, you know, and were out for months and months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're into the history too of all this. So these oh, yeah. early, early medical medical procedures, which are like barbaric, right? You know, okay, I'm gonna shut you up right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you stupid man. <laughs> you know, God forbid they're gonna be talking about us as being barbaric in yeah, another hundred years. Yeah, I'm great, sure. Great know. point. And one of the points I want to make is mental health, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia. We're in the dark ages with this. Nobody knows what causes. Yeah. You know, if any of you know, give me a call and we'll share the Nobel Prize, okay? Uh, I have no idea what causes schizophrenia. All kinds of stupid ideas out there for centuries. Mm -hmm. um, we're still in the dark ages. We still don't have any good way of diagnosing, treating, curing it. We just hop them up with drugs and hope that they stay on them and are vegged. Right. You know, but, uh, yeah, we have no idea. Alzheimer's, God forbid, you know? Yeah. None of this stuff. So we're barbaric in that. Even cancer, they're going to laugh at us 100 years from now the way we treat it. And uh, i got to say that surgeons are one of the few professions where they're constantly trying to, uh, trying to uh, exclude their own field, trying to get beyond the point where anyone ever needs surgery. Right. That's our that, ultimate goal. Yeah, that's that's a good, that's a good that, point. That's a good point is that you're, the ultimate goal is that there are no surgeons because exactly. nobody needs to have those surgeries. Exactly. But you got yeah. a lot of work to do to get there. Yes, we do. So, yeah. So to call something barbaric, you know, sorry, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. this is really like – I. I'm writing this book and uh, writing about the Civil War, and I'll mention it to people. Oh, yeah, those guys are chewing cigars and sawing off legs while people are right. screaming. No, it wasn't anything like that. Yeah. Nothing. But people like the sensationalism. They, right. And it, it's, it, it's called uh, generational or intellectual uh, hybris or condescension, where somehow you think your generation is smarter than anybody that came before you. Yeah. And I, I argue just the opposite, that I think some of the people like a thousand years ago were oh, a lot smarter than we are now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> I can definitely stand by that. So when you say barbaric, you know, uh, they, what they did was the state of the art for their time, for right. what they knew. Yeah, that's, that's how you have to look at it. Yeah. They tried the best they could with what they had and right. the knowledge they had. Yeah, there were some, you know, barbaric people out there, but I've seen them in my own profession today. Right, right. That shouldn't be doing surgery, for instance. Yeah, yeah, that that that's true. Um, 
Yeah, what are the, I guess, biggest, when does anesthesia come into play? Like, when was that first? Uh, October 1846, Massachusetts General Hospital. Not the exact, exact day, year, day. like month. I think it was 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> I was just a little, I can't remember. <laughs> um, anesthesia is a crazy thing, though, too, because that's used with everything now when you think about, you know, you go back 100 years, or, well, now it would be 200 years almost. Yeah. You yeah. know, if you're saying 1840s, but how many surgeries were people that, you know, I think of that we've had in here where you're under anesthesia that people had to go through. I can't imagine, you know, I had my Achilles done. I can't imagine having my leg cut open without being, like, knocked out or, yeah, like, anything yeah. like that. So, Well, a couple of things there, because this is another favorite topic of mine that I know a lot about because I researched it. And uh, two things. One is that they may have had some kind of anesthesia in different civilizations way, mm -hmm. way back, you know, like opium, yep. uh, mm -hmm. certainly alcohol, mm -hmm. uh, hemlock. They use different kinds of, you know, you think about all the people that use drugs in different civilizations. Right, yeah. Right. You know, so those kinds of drugs they'd also know about to kill the pain or at least knock you out. Yeah. They'd have what we call sulfuric uh, uh, sponges, sponges that put you to sleep that they'd impregnate with all kinds of uh, uh, herbs, and then you'd sniff that sponge and, yep. uh, yeah. Knock you, knock you right out. Knock you out. You know. And uh, I was just reading a couple of months ago this uh, uh personal from a diary of a uh, surgeon named Hume in the Napoleonic Wars, Waterloo 1815, uh, France against uh, England where they defeated Napoleon. And this guy, uh, Lord Uxbridge, uh, was sitting on his horse when a French canister shell explodes next to him. A canister shell is a shell that has, it's like a shotgun shell that has a whole bunch of pellets. When it explodes, all these pellets go flying and it pretty much mangled up, hit him in the right knee. Uh, his leg was hanging on by just threads. And uh, so they took him right away to a field hospital where this uh, surgeon, Hume, operated on him. And uh, the guy's just talking away through it and says, you know, doctor, do what you have to do. And then he's sawing through the bone, and the assistant was holding the leg up too high, and the saw got wedged in the bone halfway through. You know, like when you're cutting something, it gets wedged in there. And the surgeon apologizes, and Huxley says, it's okay, go ahead, do what you have to do, you know. Mm -hmm. Without anesthesia, without anesthesia. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, so what? A, they were tough. B, they're so used to pain, right? which we're not. Mm -mm. Uh, we're, you know, pussies when yeah. it comes to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, uh, also the tourniquet itself. Now, your leg goes numb when you got crisscrossed. Well, the same thing happens with a tourniquet. It shuts off the blood supply so your nerves get anoxic and your leg or arm becomes numb from the tourniquet after a few minutes. So that also helped with the anesthesia. So, you know, just throwing that out yeah. at you. What, what made you choose to write about Napoleonic Wars? Well... First place, they had great uniforms. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good start. You know? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, if you can't fight, wear a big hat. These guys just uh, helmets were useless by that time. Armor was useless. Uh, I I saw a uh, uh, cuirassier 
was a uh, uh, a horseman in the French cavalry, and he had a little steel helmet with plumes on it, more for show, but mainly to deflect saber blows while they were fighting hand-to-hand on horseback, and also a breastplate. Well, this poor sap in the Battle of Waterloo uh, got a cannon shell that went straight through a breastplate and out the back plate, and that's in a museum now that I've seen. I can send you a picture of it. Uh, clearly a big hole right through his breastplate. I mean, absolutely useless, you know. Yeah. So what do you wear? Well, you wear clothes. Well, back then they had no idea of camouflage, really. And so they tried to make themselves look as neat as possible, you know, strut out there in the battlefield. And it was great for the ladies, too. Uh, so they're really fanciful. And then I read this interesting thing where in the Battle of Water, uh, Battle of Trafalgar, excuse me, in 1805 between the French Napoleon fleet, Spanish fleet against the English fleet right off the coast of Spain called Trafalgar. Uh, Napoleon was going to invade England and uh, Horatio Nelson, the great uh, one-eyed, one-armed admiral, led the English fleet. And uh, in that battle, uh, Nelson was killed, but uh, the admiral of French was badly defeated. In fact, just I'm going to pickle night tomorrow night in New York City, and that's for naval people that love history because the pickle was a little schooner that after the battle sailed back as fast as it could to England to tell them that we won, but unfortunately Nelson was killed. So that little schooner is called the pickle, and that's why it's the pickle thing tomorrow night. So the French Admiral Villeneuve, who lost, and he actually tried to get away, escape. He didn't really wasn't much of a fighter. Was summoned by Napoleon back to Paris. Said, "Oh boy, I'm going to really get reamed out now." On his way back to Paris by carriage, he's got all these little stops. He stops at this one little hotel, halfway to Paris, and lo and behold, uh, he's found dead in the morning with a suicide note, with about seven stab wounds to his chest. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, windows Real open. Uh, <laughs> Real <you know>. suicide. <laughs> That's how you really do suicide right there. Yeah, a little <laughs> suspicious, you know. <laughs> and this is a true story. And I thought, well, that's a great start for a book. Did he really commit suicide? Obviously not. Mm-hmm. Napoleon had agents that came and finished him off. And that's the start of the book. And then I decided, well, I'm going to write about a guy like myself that starts out learning surgery. And I love the Navy and everything. This episode of Off Exit 10 is brought to you by Anchor and the all-new Anchor Pro, crafted to endure the most high-performance workouts without the high cost and space requirements of a standard cable machine. Named the best portable cable machine by Men's Health Home Gym Awards, Anchor provides the full functionality of a cable machine in one small space-saving unit. Designed with user-friendliness in mind, Anchor can simply be attached to any squat rack or placed on any wall in your home gym using its intuitive sliding track mount. With up to 65 pounds of resistance, Anchor is built for high speed and controlled exercises alike, from cable presses and rows to chops and lifts. The Anchor has been a game changer for us here at CDSF, and now you can enjoy the same professional quality cable machine in your own home gym by heading over to anchortraining.com and using code CDSF10 for 10% off your order today. Get all the benefits of a cable machine without the high cost and installation fees. Enjoy the portable luxury and space-saving performance of Anchor today by going to anchortraining.com and using code 
code CDSF10 at checkout. That's anchortraining.com, promo code CDSF10 for 10% off your order today. Okay, when you finish your medical career, you then got an MFA, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's where I met Tim O'Brien that wrote the book. What was your process to even sit down and start writing that? Because you're blending, you know, this these historical events with the story of, of a guy like yourself. Well, it's called historical uh, fiction. Yep. Or creative uh, fiction, where uh, you do a heck of a lot of research to make sure you get it accurate. Right. And that's where my own experiences come in. And then I did a lot of research on uh, the navies during that time, and obviously all this political stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And then I, you write out uh, an agenda, a plan, uh, and this is something Aristotle already described uh, back uh, 3,000 years ago as the story, the arc of the story that starts out uh, with your hero or heroine, and then as they progress through the story, they encounter obstacles all the way along, obstacles that preclude them from trying to reach a certain goal till uh, there's an epitome at the top of the arc, a resolution where they figure out a way to overcome the obstacles and the, what's called the denouement where they then everything's solved and everything has a happy ending. And that's the traditional story arc. So that's why I tried to do here in this book is that story arc, which just about every story has. Right. How long did it take you start to finish to sit down and map it out and get it and go into production? Well, I was so pumped up about this, and I had the time since I was retired, four months. That's, that's quick. That's pretty quick. Right? Yeah. That's quick because I've been working on the history of medicine for nine years. Right. right. <laughs> so, so you had all of that information I had all all in my already head. there. And Plus, it was just... it's so much easier to write fiction than nonfiction because with nonfiction – you, you got to have all the facts right. straight. It's got to be 100%. Yeah. Like, you know. And I've read so many other books where they get it all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Does watching like TV drive you crazy in terms of medicine when you see stuff and you're like, it's not yeah, really like that? Yeah, I can't like watch that. that stuff. Yeah, I would assume, yeah. I would assume can't so. Watch like, it. it does not happen. And like my that. wife, too. Yeah. You know, I'll have a, a 100 cc's of 1% epinephrine intravenously, please. No, give me the friggin' amp of happy and get it in him. <laughs> <laughs> See Dr. G just screaming at the TV like, that's not right. That's right. You idiots. <laughs> <laughs> the one show I did like, uh, watch it on reruns, is Bones. Oh, Bones okay. is a, it's Bones? a good show. Yeah. That's a good show. Yeah. Bones, yeah. Bones is solid. Yeah. I believe it. I like uh, Criminal Minds. It's a little dark, but it's a good one. I haven't seen that. I'll yeah, it's like a pro that it's like out. a it's like a profiling show. Yeah, you know, like they'll profile the the criminals and yeah, it's their psychology. And then I gotta admit, uh, guilty pleasure. What? Watch all the alien stuff. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, listen, aliens yeah. are real. Do you think care. aliens are out there? <sighs> are is there life elsewhere? Absolutely. But what is that? Is it what we're seeing? I don't know. At best, at best, they may be probes, unmanned probes or robotic probes mm -hmm. coming to investigate us that may be all over the universe. Uh, or they can be Chinese-Soviet, you know, probes. <laughs> right. But I don't think so. Not the way they act aerodynamically. Yeah, yeah. So there's something to it. Uh, yeah. I, I'd like, yeah. I'd like to think so, but you're like, yeah. hey. Now, whether know. aliens visited us in the past, I'm also... 
intrigued by these stories. Every civilization people talk has that. People talk about that. Well, you look at you look at like the architecture of of you know the pyramids. pyramids. I know that's something that people always throw out, and they're like, "Well, how did this civilization have such advanced?" architecture and ways to get all of these blocks together and make it and do you think civilization just got to a point that was so advanced and then something happened that wiped it down and then it comes we had to rebuild or no Uh, that's gone through my head a bunch of times too in fact i was even thinking writing a book like that uh but uh well according to archaeology paleo archaeology study of mankind you know there's there's definite proof that we evolved through a series of steps but that's only been over the last like four to seven million years you know god knows what happened 100 million years ago or a billion years ago if there's a civilization on this earth yeah well like mike said like was there a point where we advanced to a point and then there was like a reset button yeah that happened exactly yeah some catastrophe some floods kind of planet of the apes sort of a thing i was thinking more of like men in black when he comes in with a little flashy thing and flashes (laughs) you right in the eye you forget everything (laughs) like that's what i was thinking boy i wish i had that (laughs) i think we we all do we all do especially with a wife (laughs) you didn't see that (laughs) um so you're working on another book now too uh, well, the the history of medicine, mm-hmm. but then I got a couple in mind in the back, a sequel to this, and then that one where they discover a modern human being that's like millions and millions of years old that has some kind of armor, protective, ballistic, modern type of armor on him, saying, "What the?" <laughs> Go like an iRobot style, like a yeah. sci- like a sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that. Um, so with the history of medicine, you're going back how far? Prehistory, prehistory. You know, where we find evidence of amputations done by cave people. Now when I talk about prehistory, history is defined as when we start to write about our experiences, where it's written down. Right. And anything before writing is called prehistory. So, you know, even 8,000 years ago is prehistory because we don't have any records except archaeological uh but yeah this goes way back uh cave drawings uh for instance uh i want to be delicate here but no, say I, it, I am a physician yeah yeah say it okay so i'm giving the series of lectures on art and anatomy how they overlap how uh artists uh learn from anatomy and anatomists learn from artists and they overlap sometimes without even realizing it and i go way back to prehistory and this is my study of cave paintings that are 25 30,000 years old and there's this one particular cave painting that struck me right away and it's of a uh, uh, hunt for a uh, primitive they don't they're extinct now uh, sort of buffaloes or bisons these and they're monsters and uh, they got these little stick figures, and the bison is beautifully illustrated on this cave painting. There's a spear through his belly, and his bowels are hanging out. Uh, this brings to mind that they were obviously, A, hunting him, but B, they were actually very observant of what was going on. Well, you got these guys throwing spears at the bison. Here's this guy in front of the bison, lying on his back. Uh, again, a stick figure, obviously dead. Uh, a little 
stick next to him that's got a little bird head on it. We we think maybe he was either trying to distract the bison so they could sneak up on him, or uh, it was some kind of ritual, like I'm going to cast a spell on you so we can kill you. But he's obviously dead. And the art historians have called it the dead man because he's lying. Mm -hmm. But he's got this little erection, <laughs> okay, <laughs> which has been totally ignored by the art historians. Like, eh, Nobody eh. talks about his erection? No. Well, that's what I think it is. I mean, it's so clear. Nobody else has it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not even the bison. And uh, I saw it as a surgeon. And the first thing that hit me is, this guy has a spinal cord transection. Explain. He's been knocked down by the bison, and it's cut in half his spinal cord. And the first thing you see in a man when that happens to them with transection cutting through the spinal cord is an involuntary erection. If I would see this guy in the emergency room, that's the first thing I think, think of. Yeah. And that's what they saw. And that's what they saw. They couldn't explain it. They had no idea right. what it. Well, I think going back to, yeah, when I use the term barbaric, that's wrong because they may have not understood everything we understand right. now, but they knew what was going on and steps to take. This to power so, to of observation. To, right, mm -hmm. to solve issues. Yeah. You know, the bowels hanging out of the bison, this guy lying there. Um, yeah, powers of observation. Right. Very cute. Yeah. And I showed this to several other physicians. I said, what do you think this man is suffering from? Oh, my God. It looks like he's got a spinal cord transection. <laughs> but nobody else talks about this. No, because they don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know. They just see it and they go, ah. Yeah. Dead man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, this uh, represents this and this. Uh, yeah. And then you bring, and then your plan is to bring this book to modern, to modern day and modern times. To Ukraine now. To Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole crazy thing now that, that we're, that we're all living through mm -hmm. and watching. How does that end? You think? Oh well, I think the Ukrainians are going to win. Um, I don't know if it's going to win in some uh, form of treaty, compromise. I think Putin's going to get the axe yeah mm -hmm. um that's happened to soviet leaders in the past when they're not so successful you know next thing you know is that they're pushing up daisies in a mausoleum um <laughs> so you know uh i think it's going to end well for the ukrainians but there's still some hurt out there before that happens yeah well there's been tremendous hurt already on on their front have you read that Putin's sick right now too. Have you seen that? I've read all different things about that. I feel like that's been reported since like the start of it almost. Yeah, yeah. But the one thing that is credible that I've seen in photographs is the discoloration, the bruising on the back of his hands. What's that tell you? That he's had IVs stuck in the back of his hands, possibly probably for chemotherapy. Right, because that's what they say is that he has yeah. that he has cancer. That I did see. I saw the bruising on the back of his hands. So it's a, it's for some something. It's for something. Yeah, yeah. You know, most more than likely it could it's probably that, but it right. You know, could be a lot be, of things. Being the history buff that you are, when you look back, I mean, did you see this coming? Like, there's a chance Russia could invade Ukraine at some point in time, or no? No, no. Really blindsided me. I'm sure our military leaders probably had that in mind right from, well, yeah they're uh, 
pretty savvy people, the yeah. ones I've known. Yeah. Really savvy. But no, it blindsided me. Yeah. Because it's stupid. Right. Yeah. Absolutely stupid. It's stupid move. I mean, it's Putin saying, I want to make this part of the Soviet Union yeah. once yeah. again. Yeah. Right. Well, it's just that old uh, world domination, yeah. world power. Yeah, they can't you know? get away from that. You know, it's it's that yeah. whole thing just repeating itself, yeah. you know? Yeah, I feel like no. I feel like that's us as humans. It's like we're so tribal, and can we ever get away from that? No matter how far we advance in medicine and technology, and gonna be a while. It's yeah. gonna, gonna be, be a while. It's gonna be a long time. You, you know who would go over there right now and be able oh. to end all of the Russians? End it all. You know who? Would you know who would go? We'll go over there. John Wick. Oh, John Wick would end this war right now. Yes, and those dogs. Oh, all oh, those. Send send John Wick over there. Oh man, we need guns, lots of guns. You like oh, John Wick though? What a man! What a man! I mean, if I ever have my biography done on film, I want him to play oh, you want me. Keanu to be you. Listen, yeah. I, I could see it. I could see it. I could see it. Did you see John Wick three? How that ends? I don't know if I've. I was trying to remember because I, I actually watched John Wick the other day, uh, the first one, and I was trying to remember if I had seen the third one or not. I definitely saw the first two. I can't remember if I've seen the third one or not, but I know there's a fourth one coming out now too. Yes, yeah. So. He's got you know so many lines. He's he's just so loquacious. My <laughs> God. So at the end, he gets the crap beaten out of him, mm -hmm. and he gets dragged back into uh, the king of New York, king of Brooklyn, or whatever that. The black dude is, I can't think of, Fishburn. Yeah, Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne yeah. Yeah. Lawrence Fishburne, yeah. And uh, they dump him out on the ground in front of Lawrence Fishburne. And he says, John, John, I don't know about you, but I'm really peed off. Now I'm really peed off. Tell me, John, are you peed off? And John looks up and says, yeah. <laughs> 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 That's the end. <laughs> Man of many words. Man of many words. Man yeah. of many words. <laughs> what is it? The second one where he goes into like the there's like all the mirrors, and I feel like it's, oh yeah. yeah, he kills like fifty people. Uh, you, you could count. It's probably more than fifty within like a. <laughs> well, just watching the first the first one again, I was like, dude, he and I would I want to know the number of people in each movie that he kills because it has to be some sort of astronomical number because like just in yeah. the first scene. Look it up. It has to be on the internet. Look it up. <laughs> yeah, all right. how, many, how many bodies yeah. does John Wick have? <laughs> There's a lot of bodies under his belt. Yeah. You want to take any bets? I'm thinking around 50. Paul, go. I'm uh, more. Like total? Yeah. For yeah. like all the movies? Oh, no. Just anyone. Oh. Let's so, say this. Let's say, can you look up the last scene in the second movie? The last scene in the second movie? Ah. I'll say 80. Wow. <laughs> you just want the last scene in the second movie. Yeah, is that possible yeah. to look up? It's a the, fucking crazy scene. The mirror scene? The mirror, yeah. The mirror scene's awesome. That's one of my, that, that was an awesome scene. Um, in that scene, it's got to be. It's a lot. <laughs> Keanu Reeves is crazy, though. He has That's a Trilogy, now going to be four. Matrix is four. Yes, yeah. Um, what's it called? Bill and Ted has two. Yeah. Two. Yep. First of all, I said this too when I was watching. I was like, Best gig in the world. He literally just plays a different version of himself in every movie he does. Yeah, yeah like really. just a different version of Keanu Reeves in every yeah. movie. Like that's that's what he plays. I'm like that's a, that's a great career. 
And my wife thinks he's hot, so. Yeah, he's a good-looking dude, man. Yeah. He's a good-looking dude. He's a good dude, too. Like, that's he's the thing, good too. Dude. Like, yeah. when you, like, when he, when he, when he talks, um. He, if he talks. If he talks. Jay, yeah. is, that, is that fact too detailed to find? That fact is too detailed. Uh, just give, give a kill count that you see. <laughs> right, the full trilogy of movies? Yeah. <clears throat> what are the guesses? Oh, full trilogy? A thousand. <laughs> Three, 350. I'll say 487. Okay, continue on. I'll <laughs> <laughs> come back. Come back to us when you yes. when you have that number. Okay. What's this helmet in front of us? That is a German helmet, a Stahlheim, from the First World War. Holy shit! It's I, authentic. It's authentic. I put that on my head earlier. Wow, that's yeah. wild. And uh, it's got the camouflage pattern, which is kind of faded pretty badly. But that was the first time they started using camouflage again. Yeah, when you said that earlier, I, I remember, I mean, obviously movies and everything is very fictionalized and, you know, dramatized, but. And the number is, Paul? 306. Who said three something? I said 350. Okay. Wow. Winner to All Paul. Right. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> Listen, I, you know, he kills a lot of people, but a thousand? That's a lot. Uh, I thought yeah. I was over. But when you brought up the, uh, the fact that they didn't use camouflage, like, I remember seeing, obviously, you know, you'd see, like, the Revolutionary War. They'd be wearing, like, the bright red mm -hmm. and whatnot. It's like, how is that a tactically a good move? Like, you're, you're yeah. literally, like, literally I can see you. Hey, what's going on, guys? I'm right here. Whereas, like, it, it's amazing that they didn't think of that almost sooner, you know. But yeah. at the same time, you know, you got to advance and learn. and Right. Plus the... Uh the musketry, the, uh, the small arms were so inaccurate. Right, that's right. true. Like, you almost had to be from media away for yeah. you to. That's why they had the, uh, what is it, the thing on the end that, that, that you could stab them with too, right? Stabby, stabby. Yeah, it's stabby, stabby. A, yeah, bayonet. Yeah. Bayonet, that's what it was. I was like, I know the name of it, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. But yeah, that that's why they had those too, because you were so close that you could essentially do that too. That's right. That's right. Boy, that just brings up the trench of the bayonets do you ever hear of that i did not but you can more than welcome to tell us about it okay it's in uh it's in uh um sounds like there's a lot of blood involved in this well not directly okay the, the battle of verdun in the first world war which is one of the most horrific battles i mean tens of thousands of people were getting killed every day it was just a slaughter you know they were using outmoded uh, tactics with modern arms Oh, wow. Because the First World War was the first truly industrial war. You know, you had tanks, airplanes, submarines, high munitions, gas warfare. Mm -hmm. You had it all, machine guns, uh, which you didn't have 50 years earlier in the American Civil War. Which is crazy to think it's about. Crazy. It, was only, it was only 50 years difference. Only 50 years difference. I mean, if Ulysses Grant would have had airplanes to bomb the Confederates, you know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. So uh, uh, these poor uh, Frenchmen... We're in the trenches waiting uh, to charge. They're holding their rifles with the bayonets on them sticking up over the tops of the trenches when a huge shell hit near them and buried them alive. And to this day, just their bayonets in a line are sticking up out of the ground. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just knowing that there are all these guys underneath the ground still hanging onto their rifles. So the rifle, like even to this day, you said they're still there so if you, probably they yeah. never dug them up just the bayonets they they have a barricade over it to protect it yep. the bayonets are rusting but yeah. 
it's still there. That's pretty pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah, very sad, very sad. Yeah. Stupid war. So this uh, helmets were pretty much obsolete uh, by the 18th century. Nobody was wearing helmets because they were cumbersome. They got in the way. Some of the horsemen, like in the Napoleonic Wars, wore them to protect them from saber cuts, but, you know, against a bullet or artillery shell, forget it. Well, by the First World War, they had these high munitions now. Uh, they were using smokeless powder, nitrates, uh, all sorts of different stuff instead of black gunpowder. And they'd have these shells that they'd lob over and they'd burst above your head and shower you. Well, you had all these people standing in trenches and they'd be showered wearing cloth caps or leather helmets like the Prussians did with little spikes on top. And there's absolutely no protection against the shrapnel that was raining down them. So the French came up uh, with, well, first uh, a couple of guys started putting pots on top of their literally pots to protect their heads. <laughs> yeah. And in 1915, the French came up with the Edoyan helmet, and the Germans thought, hey, that's a good idea. We're going to do that too. And they had the steel industry, the, and you know how methodical the Germans are and technologically uh, advanced. And uh, they did a design based on helmets of the Middle Ages. And uh, they designed this helmet, which is very good. The same thing was pretty much used by the Germans, as you know, in the Second World War. It looks like the Second World War helmet. And this protected them. And uh, the bolts there, what they call the Frankstein bolts on the sides, that was to attach a metal, uh, a metal guard that would protect the forehead. And, but it was impractical, so that was discarded. But uh, those little bolts on the side still persist. So that's why it has that. And it was, you know, by the Second World War, they didn't have that anymore. But that's it. Uh, and it did protect a heck of a lot of people, save a lot of people from that overhead shrapnel. Yeah. Well, it's just like all these advances in, okay, we talked about medicine, but now just in 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 the the weapons and the gear that people have, that changes the whole strategy of how uh, of war. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I went down to Brook Army Medical Hospital several years ago to interview the wounded warriors from Iraq, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. They're undergoing rehab there. Uh, and uh, the surgeons there were telling me, you know, uh, guys that we saw in Vietnam that we just have to leave. There was nothing we could do for them. Now we can save them. And uh, that's a real moral question. One of the vets I interviewed uh, had only one arm. The other arm and both legs were gone. You know, and it is just so darn sad. Another guy who got absolutely burned to a crisp uh, when his uh, 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 motorized vehicle was blown up and his face was just one big scar, and he had these little plastic ears with metal studs implanted in the skull that he could attach magnetically fake ears to his sides. Uh, just awful, yeah. awful. And you wonder sometimes, you know, we're saving these people, but wouldn't it be better if they were never injured in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Well. But that's, that's tremendous strides in trauma surgery is what I'm getting at. Right. Tremendous strides in 30 years from Vietnam. Right. And even on the mental health front, I feel like PTSD is way more accepted 
talk about get people help treatment nowadays, or am I wrong? Is it still we can do a lot? It better? is in the civilian population population mm -hmm. in the Marines. No. It's still kind of, you know, you tough it out, man. You're a Marine. Right. You're a jarhead. You don't, you know, don't complain to me that it, it's unfortunate. Right. Do you know a lot of people that struggle with that from being in combat and being, a fair amount? Yeah. yeah, a fair amount. Yeah, yeah. And I'm was associated with the uh, war horse up in Saratoga. Are you familiar with that? No, explain, please. Oh, okay. Well, it's it's this. Of course, Saratoga is a, you know racing racehorse community, mm -hmm. and they have all these horses. In the meantime, between the sessions, the seasons, race uh, uh, horse uh, seasons, and. Uh, so they're just sitting around in the stables, and somebody came up with the idea, well, you know, dogs are good for getting over stuff like PTSD. You mm -hmm. know, we love our dogs. Mm -hmm. And uh, said, well, we got all these horses. Let's try this with some of the PTSD guys. And it's worked. They've had like 800 vets now come with PTSD and spend a few weeks with the horses. And uh, I, I didn't see it, but I saw the video that they took of this one fellow with severe PTSD. He wouldn't talk or anything, wouldn't talk to the psychiatrist, pretty much kept to himself, didn't know what was going on with the poor guy. And they bring him to the uh, stable, uh, actually the arena where this horse is galloping around and around and around. And he's just standing there looking at the horse, no expression. And the horse then comes trotting up to him out of the clear blue, starts nudging him and rubbing his head against his shoulder. The guy just starts bawling like a little kid. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's amazing what, you know, <clears throat> companionship from an animal can yeah. can give you. Yeah, and, like being around you. you know, helps <laughs> <I mean>. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Jordan, Jordan, lost his Jordan just lost his shit right there. <laughs> Yeah, but that just means that I'm doing a good job over here. You know, yeah, I'm a good yeah. companion. You know, I'm like a dog. You know, yeah. I'm always gonna be by your side. Yeah, I'll scratch your ears. <laughs> hey, listen, scratch my back, I scratch yours. You know, <laughs> man. But uh, but yeah, it's that, that's pretty amazing to to hear that they're able to do find other ways to help these guys, yeah, even if yeah. like it's not through just you know your typical you know, therapy and, and whatnot, you know, finding other ways to help these guys, you know, cope with it. You know? And I'm convinced it's biological, yeah. chemical. Don't give me this crap that you had problems with your mother when you were a child, you know. Uh, it's it's chemical. You got this reaction. In the Second World War, they called it the thousand-yard stare. And there's this uh, famous painting by an artist named Tom Lee, who I just love, that it was in the front lines in the Pacific, did paintings from what he saw and there's this one guy with explosions going on behind him in the mountains where they're shelling the Japanese up in the mountains and he's looking at you and he's got these big huge pupils dilated and he's just staring at you from under his helmet called the thousand yard stare and that was people that had seen too much combat what that means is that uh, you know this fight or flight response mm -hmm. that your adrenaline your epinephrine is geared up within milliseconds when you're in danger well, yeah, that's great when you're running away from danger or having to fight somebody, but that's meant for only a few seconds or a few minutes at the most. Right. If that goes on for days, weeks, or months, that continual 
epinephrine release, mm-hmm. it, it's going to destroy you. And that's why the pupils are dilated, because the epinephrine causes the pupils to dilate so you can see danger right. better. You have better vision. But it also increases your heart rate, sweating, palpitations, um, all kinds of things. Uh, yeah, so that's a thousand-yard stare. Well, it makes sense if horm- you know, hormones and different things are being thrown off because of being in a constant state of fight or flight. Yep. You know, you're... Yep. Your stress stress is going to be higher. Yes, cortisol. cortisol is going to mm-hmm. go up. Your dopamine is probably going to go down. You're right. Like there's so many different things that go into that that people don't realize that yeah, like the experience is why maybe you that happened, but right. the biological science is what's causing you to have continued trauma or PTSD or whatever. Friend of mine, a surgeon who was in Phu Bai in Vietnam. Phu Bai was a big hospital took care of all these guys. And uh, he shares the same view I do. And he said basically that a switch is turned on, mm-hmm. but it's never turned off. Right. Just like you said, yeah. it just continues. Even, you know, guys screaming in the middle of the night at home you know, from a nightmare, or if they hear a noise jumping under something for cover. Mm-hmm. And then flipping oh. that switch off is the hard part. It's, and that's the hard part therapies come into play and medication when needed right right yeah horses horses, horses yeah dogs. animals <laughs> Paul. listen i'll be a support animal i'm all for it you know what that means though if i'm a support animal i, I can got, get i can get on flights for free i know but i'm so, gonna have to get a vest for you and a license <laughs> that's fine i'll wear the vest i'll wear the vest <laughs> just don't give me a collar that's just weird <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, depends can, on what you want, what you're into. Well, can be fun. Yeah. Hey, don't search, don't search collars for humans over there, Paul. I don't want that on my browser history. <laughs> what it, What are you reading now? What are you researching right now? Anything in particular? Actually, the Napoleonic Wars. Okay. Yeah, and then I'm going to get on to the Civil War, uh, which was cool because they had anesthesia by then. Right. But they didn't have antisepsis. That was discovered a year after the Civil War ended, where they could have saved so many more lives if they would have had. They didn't have antibiotics, but if they would have used antiseptic techniques. You yeah. Know. Mm-hmm. Think about being able to control that fight or flight. I mean, yeah, being a surgeon in active battle, I feel like is a whole. Imagine trying to focus in while you're in an operating room. Yeah. You know, yeah. Put it out. Put it out in there. What did you do for the Navy? You were a flight surgeon? surgeon. Uh-huh. Which is basically a generic term is that okay. I was just a surgeon in the Navy. Yep. You know, and uh, if need be, I would have had to take it off in a plane, but that never happened to me. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> that was, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. Wonderful experience. This episode of Off Exit 10 is brought to you by Drink Alchemy. Fatigue and brain fog affect us all, destroying everything we pursue. Whether as an athlete, artist, creator, or entrepreneur, our mind holds the key to performing optimally. By combining the most potent organic nootropics found in nature, Drink Alchemy delivers sustainable boost to creativity, memory, energy, and focus in one epic beverage. Stop pumping your body full of excessive amounts of caffeine and unknown proprietary blends from other energy drinks and get clean energy from Drink Alchemy's natural nootropics like lion's mane, L-theanine, and caffeine from green tea. Used by Olympians, D1 athletes, MMA fighters, and entrepreneurs, Drink Alchemy has become a huge part of my daily routine. 
making sure I'm functioning optimally during long days of coaching athletes, running CDSF, and getting in quality workouts myself. So do yourself a favor and ditch the energy drinks loaded with caffeine, other stimulants, and who knows what else, and head over to drinkalchemy.com today. Live with your mind unbound and save 10% off your order by using code CDSF at checkout. That's drinkalchemy.com, promo code CDSF for 10% off your order today. Yeah, Mr. Beasley's the best behaved dog I've ever seen, Dr. G. He is. Did you do training with him? Very little. He's just a smart little son of a gun. Yeah, Mr. B has shit. I think he's is. smarter than us, so. That's what he thinks. Well. <laughs> Especially you. I mean, I know he's smarter than me. That's a fact. <laughs> I mean, he'll look up at me and roll his eyes. Like... <laughs> it's funny, because whenever I see him like come over to you, I know I'm like, he's he's saying something to you right now and i don't know what it is but he's right re he's ready to go yeah he's ready yeah, to do his thing go. yeah yeah get <laughs> he, me out of this place <laughs> he, he's like you've had your time it's my time now yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i love how he trots up to the various people oh yeah everybody so loves him they love when he's here man yeah huh. we did try to get reese to play with him once that didn't go well yeah reese like isn't great with reese isn't with other with other dogs she's man. not and neither is beasley he doesn't think he's a dog he thinks he's a little boy <laughs> I mean, he is. He's a little boy. Mm. You know. No, well, he's a little man. He's a little man. He's a man well, now. Yeah, he's a man. Now. He's a man now. Yeah, he's 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 well behaved. Um, where did your brain go when? Oh, I, oh. I've asked myself. <laughs> <laughs> this is oh loaded. God! This so, is many times, <laughs> so many times. So many times. And other parts too. <laughs> Where did where where did, where did where did you go when when COVID first broke out and you started reading? How much did you research about that early on? Quite a bit because a lot of people were asking me about it, and I was in a I'm in a couple of different organizations where they asked me to write weekly mm -hmm. reports summaries of what's going on. So I was really on top of things. Like then when it first you know when it first happened, did you see it? Did you did you read about it before it you know it popped up in in the news and we all became aware of it or no 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 it pretty much again broadsided us yeah yeah but then once it hit were you like okay this is going to be here for a while well i had yes that i did think but uh i did a series of lectures uh, about seven years ago on plagues okay and i was talking about the spanish flu and i said you know now if another plague like that hit the United States, I think we might have up to 350,000 people die. Well, yeah. Now we're over a million. Yeah. And people were saying 350,000. Well, uh. so. That's pretty insane. It yeah. is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And then, like, our initial response to it, like, what were your thoughts in terms of locking down versus not and masking versus not and like how well that stuff was going to help us well um i was a real faxer right mm -hmm. from the beginning because mm -hmm. i believe in that completely in fact i just got my booster last week i know we talked about it last week yeah because yeah. i uh the news is just a, as i said it's a confusing thing and it, it is it always drives me crazy so i'm like who can i ask to give me the facts and make me feel you know confident yeah in, 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 in our choices. I definitely believe in that. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a cure-all. It's not 100%. It's about 92% effective, but heck, I'll take those odds. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, 
the other thing was that I just thought that our government and even the uh, National Institutes of Health were very slow to respond right. to the problem. And uh, the lockdowns, I think, initially, they were necessary. Um, the timing, uh, the ubiquity, if enough places were doing it, enough states were doing it, because all you had to do is get on a plane or a train and it there spread. It goes. Yeah. Like if we all straight shut it down for a certain amount of time, yeah. could it have really kept us under con control? I'm not sure. You know, China tried that and just keeping people in their apartments for months. Mm -hmm. And uh, that led to all kinds of problems, too. Right. Uh, I think there's there's a middle ground somewhere Who? that would have been reasonable. Wasn't it like, was it New Zealand was like the first place yes. that was like, yeah. What did they do? Like. That, I mean, obviously, their population... I think they were strict, right? They were very strict. Their population significantly less, but still, like, they went and had zero cases at one point. Yeah, they were know? very strict. Very so strict. They, and they were, you know, back <laughs> to living pretty much a normal life much sooner than I feel like a lot of other places were. Right. Um, because, of that, because of that. And it was, you know, they came together as, a, as one instead of trying to figure it out individually, almost. Right. So... But also one of my predictions was that it would mutate itself over time into a, just another flu. Right. Because the Spanish flu that killed 700,000 Americans and several million people around the world now is the common flu, H1N1. Right, I mean, because mm -hmm. this, is, this isn't our first time in history no. with something like this happening. It's... Not our first rodeo. Right, no. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, it's interesting you say that too, because like at a certain point, like COVID, all the, diff the different strains and stuff right. is more of like a flu, but you still get a flu shot, you know, a lot of people. Yeah. You know, so even though it may not be a hundred percent that you're not going to get the flu, you're you know more people more people than not get it, so that, that way they can hopefully prevent it from happening. Like you said, the flu is a mutation of Spanish flu, which was pretty deadly, horrible. You know, so um, when you think of the 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 mutations of COVID, it's you know getting to the same the same thing essentially. So yeah, and you know what understanding the genetics and all that, these viruses, as they replicate, as they reproduce, will undergo errors that we actually know exactly the timing of those errors. So within a day, there'll be thousands of mutations around the world. But it's like the lottery. Only one out of 10 million mutations will actually result in something more dangerous. Right. But if you go through enough mutations, it's going to screw up its own genetic mechanism where it becomes less and less and less invasive and dangerous. Right. And that's where we're at now. And that's where we're getting to, yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of that unknown early on. Like, oh I think God. like the common cold or flu, eventually just about everyone's gonna get COVID. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If we have if you haven't if you haven't already. Yeah. But Yeah, exactly. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's true. Um yeah, Doctor, you know, I appreciate you coming on. Oh, so okay. A, You're throwing me out. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Oh. I'm not throwing you out. <laughs> like I'm, a good, I'm just getting started. No, we can. We can keep going, man. If you want to? If you want? Uh, just you, a few more if, minutes. If you sure. want to keep going, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you're researching Napoleonic Wars now. Yeah. yeah. Um, are you writing? As you research, are you writing the book as you research? Or are you doing all the research and then going to write the whole thing? No, it's I got to do the writing at the same time. I figured that because yeah. it, I feel like it would get kind of jumbled together a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. You know, between the eras and, and all that. So you so you're doing Napoleonic Wars, you're going to write that that part of it mm -hmm. and then you'll do the um, Civil War. Yeah. And the Revolutionary War and 
in America. I just got finished with that part. I got to tell you about this one guy. Uh, uh, he was uh, uh, living in what is now Arlington and uh, outside of uh, Lexington, Concord, mm -hmm. he, which is right between Lexington and Concord. This guy was in the, uh, 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 the uh, French and Indian Wars as a young guy and uh, captured a sword from a Frenchman and all this back in 1750. And uh, by the time uh, the American Revolution came about, he was like uh, 75 years old and was just farming out in, in what is now uh, uh, Arlington, Massachusetts. And the uh, night before, he sees all these guys, British soldiers, marching in the rain towards Lexington. He's saying, you know, it's like 1 o'clock in the morning. What are these guys doing? Well, of course, that's the Battle of Lexington in April 15, where the American Revolution starts, where they kill all these colonists that show up. Then they start marching back to Boston, the British, having been up all night. And uh, word starts filtering back that they've killed a bunch of Americans in Lexington. They're just there to protest. The British were looking for arms that the rebels had stored away, stashed away cannons and so forth. This guy says, well, those SOBs, and he goes and he grabs a sword and his musket from over the fireplace. This guy's 75 years old, okay? He rushes back out. Now it's like 11 o'clock in the afternoon, morning, and these redcoats are streaming back towards Boston. They got a 20-mile hike back to Boston, and he hides behind a stone wall on the boundary of his farm, waiting for these bastards to come by. And everybody says, old man, you gotta get, nah, I'm staying my ground. And uh, sure enough, pretty soon, redcoats start passing by him. Well, he stands up and shoots one of them right off the bat. He's reloading his musket when they charge the old man. Uh, they knock him to the ground. They bayonet him about 16 times. He manages to get another shot off, kills another one in the meantime, and they leave him for a deadline in a pool of blood. Well, by the afternoon, the redcoats are way gone, and his friends and relatives come looking for him. They find him lying next to the stone wall in a pool of blood, reloading his musket. <laughs> Have another go at him. The son of Glenn lives to be 92 years old. Wow. What? Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. He, you can't kill the old guy. He's like, you know, John Wick. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he is the original John He's Wick. He's the original John Wick. There's a monument to him in Arlington Holy. and all this stuff. Yeah. What was his name? Uh, um, I'm trying to think now. Uh, Wiley or Willie. I'll, sh I'll send you the little one-page uh, spiel that okay. I wrote about him. It's just amazing. You couldn't knock the old man down. Yeah, it's another level of tough. That's a, tough. That's it's a, tough. It's tough and a little psychotic, too, at the same time. You know? He was, yeah, probably a little off. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, he had battled in war before, so I'm sure he was like, well, you know, I know what I got to do. So yeah, yeah, here we are. But he was on a bunch of committees, too. I mean, he was dedicated to the American Revolution. Yeah. He was dedicated. So he was. Wasn't just like off the fly. He got, you know. Yeah. He was ready yeah. to help defend and. Uh, win that bitch <laughs> yeah yeah there you go yeah and he saw it through and lived well into his 90s yeah that's crazy yeah and then what's crazy too was like okay post-revolution uh, i mean 
Washington could have been a, a, a king. Yeah. And then we chose to set up this democracy mm-hmm. that really still stands. It's kind of crazy to think about. It's a wild experiment. It is. And that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it was an experiment for sure. Yeah. Still is. Still is. Yeah. 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 Was it his choice to only do two terms? Yes. Like he could have kept going. Yes, he could have kept going. There's only been, there's only one president that's done more than two terms, right? Or is there more than one? Yeah, Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt did, Mm -hmm. he did four, Four. right? Mm -hmm. But he died right. He died right at the, right at the beginning of the fourth term, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I know, I know a little bit of history, a little bit. There you go. Just a smidge. How did he end up doing four? Because there wasn't the rule, right? Well, it was or, the Second World War, and and the thing was, you know, can't change a horse midstream. This guy has led us through the Depression and has done good so far with the Second World War, and we can't switch presidents now. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just keep them, and uh, that was the thinking. So that was a special provision for him to. Which makes sense during that time. There's yeah. A lot of. Th- lot of, lot of shit going on yes <laughs> yeah that's the technical term for yeah, it. yeah yeah it's a it's a it's a weird thing too it's like such an important position and yet everybody you're changing in and out of it every four to eight, eight years. years yep yeah yep. yep. well and it's so you don't get i mean part of it's got to be so they don't get that abuse of power right right but then part of it's also you know trying to make sure we're going to continue to progress too exactly you know yep. Very good. I try sometimes. Very good. <laughs> you know, I'm really surprised. Listen, hey, you know, I can do more than just pick things up and put them down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any other history stuff you feel like you want to touch on, talk about things that you've been reading? Oh, oh gosh, I just go on and on and yeah, on. Yeah, because you still teach courses, right? Still teach courses. I'm teaching Russian history right now. Where do you teach? Uh, up at uh, Empire State College, uh, Academy for Lifelong Learning. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, uh, my one of my favorite quotes is from Mark Twain, that said that he said uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, and I think that's so true. It doesn't exactly repeat itself, but yeah. But it's pretty close. Pretty close. There's patterns. To it. Yeah. yeah, it rhymes. I like that. It rhymes. It doesn't necessarily repeat itself. What's your favorite course that you've taught? They've all been my favorites, to yeah. be honest. I've taught First World War, Second World War, Russian history, art and anatomy, plagues, um, advances in medicine, history of military medicine. Yeah, I love it all. Yeah. And people, uh, p- people can sign up for those. Yeah. Yeah. Where would they go to do that? You can talk to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool, Dr. G. And then where can people find your work? They want to buy The Surgeon's Mate. They want to read more about you. It's still on Amazon. Yep. Um, I do have a blog, but I haven't contributed much to it, frankly. That's tough to get consistent with that type of stuff. It is. It takes so much time to do it right. But are you writing every day? Try to. Yeah. Try to. Yeah. That's so important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like you got to keep it going. yeah, so the surgeons may Amazon will be the place if you got to go mm-hmm. pick that up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, people. So check it out. I appreciate you, Doctor G, for 
coming on and talking. Oh, did and you read page 143? Did you get to that yet? <laughs> no, I got to like the eighth chapter. Here, give me the book. Let me read. Is it what's 143? <laughs> Dr. G's been telling me about page 143 and to read it. Get an author's read it. Do you want an author's read it or do you want me to read no, it? No, no, no. Do you want me to read it? I don't want you to read it. <laughs> Not out loud. <laughs> but page 143 is is the page. Hold on. I'm, I'm skimming through it right now. I, I honestly don't know if that's the exact page. It's got to be pretty. <laughs> but it's pretty close. It's a sexual scene, right? Yeah. Yeah. The people, I'm, a, I'm on 143. I'm trying to fool it through right here. What keywords are you looking for? I'm, <laughs> I'm looking for I'm looking for a penis right now. <laughs> it's not that kind of book. <laughs> no, one forty three. Jack's mouth went dry. It became hard to swallow his spittle. I don't think that's it. Is it? No, no, no. no. That's not it. No. no, I'm flipping through. But uh, somewhere in there, when you get into uh, chapter nineteen, will be the and then it's 143, the start. So it's, it. it's in there somewhere. We'll, we'll put in the notes. What yeah. page, it's what different page between the hardback version uh, and, and, the, hard and the soft cover. Right, yeah. Yeah, we'll, uh, yeah. that'll be Paul's test this afternoon. Yeah. We'll send him searching, <laughs> searching, for, searching for that scene. <laughs> we'll keep the office door open. As long as you don't have to recreate it. That's all that matters. <laughs> oh, that would be creepy. <laughs> Even though Dan keeps, no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We'll keep that thought to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will, man. But no, thanks, Dr. T. Hey, last my I, pleasure. I God. appreciate it. Taking your time and doing yeah. this. Yeah, so. it's been wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah it's always fun. Thanks, always Dr. fun. T. This stuff's a blast. So we'll uh, we'll catch everybody next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.